I think there's this misnomer that mental health professionals are, you know, all perfect, right? There is no perfect. <laughs> there's no perfect, right? And yeah. so I think that there's a lot that, you know, each counselor can do to just sort of illuminate this idea that like, you know, therapy is is really just a journey for us to become more fulfilled versions of ourselves, you know, whoever we're meant to be, you know. All right. Hello and welcome back to You Need a Counselor podcast. My name is Julie Johnson. I'm the president and founder of Heart and Solutions. Um, So if you are listening in Iowa and you understand or realize that you need a counselor, um, definitely give us a call at Heart and Solutions. Uh, We are doing in-person telehealth and in school for the next couple of weeks uh, still, as well as the in-home behavioral health service for kids. I'm Krista Brown. I am the vice president at Heart and Solutions. So I am in charge of that behavioral health for kids counseling service that Julie just mentioned. Um, We go in home and work with kids on different behavioral skills, ages four to 18. We can also do telehealth right now as well in all of our locations throughout the state. Um, And this is our podcast, You Need a Counselor. So we are designed for people curious about counseling, but have barriers keeping them from experiencing the benefits of counseling. Our mission is to share stories about counseling, good, bad, and indifferent, and spread the message that everyone can benefit from mental health and behavioral health counseling services. Yeah, so we post on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Central, uh, and we are always advocating to batch up your tasks and do them once a week instead of spreading them out throughout the week. So Sunday nights, 5 p.m. Central, Krista and I will be putting away our clean laundry, putting away our outfits (laughs) to decrease our decision fatigue for the week, uh, putting together all of our outfits on Sunday nights so that we have clean clothes for the week. And if you listen to us on Sunday night, you get the latest episode and it gives you that entire week to either get scheduled with your counselor, to call and get set up with a new counselor, or to send us a message. If you're in a different state and we can't see you at Heart and Solutions, that's okay. Send us a message. We will find you a counselor to get set up in your zip code. So we are very, very excited today. We've got a very special guest from New York. Uh, We've got Dr. Renee Exelbert. Welcome, Renee. Thank you for being here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So I'm going to brag on uh, Dr. Renee Exelbert a little bit. Renee is a licensed psychologist and is the founder and the director of the Metamorphosis Center for Psychological and Physical Change. So from that title, we know, gosh, she integrates that physical side of our health and our wellness with our mental health, our psychotherapy side of our wellness. So I just love this connection, this mind-body connection that we're going to get to talk about today. So the Metamorphosis Center for Psychological and Physical Change, uh, if you are in New York, you can look them up in Manhasset and in Nyack, New York. Um, So if you are anywhere close to those locations, uh, definitely reach out to the Metamorphosis Center um, for that fusion of psychotherapy and physical well-being and, uh, and fitness. 
So uh, Dr. Uxelbert is also an adjunct professor for the Department of Applied Psychology at New York University at the Steinhardt School of Culture. Um, so really, really cool there. And then we're really excited to hear about this. So uh, there is a memoir that uh, Dr. Exelbert has recently uh, written and released. It's called Chemo Muscles. Um, and this is, I'm so excited to hear about this, uh, this memoir that's come out. So I'm going to uh, let you, Dr. Renee, I'd love to hear more about what is chemo muscles and tell us about this memoir. So um, chemo muscles lessons learned from being a psycho oncologist and cancer patient. Mm -hmm. It journals my experience of working in a pediatric cancer center for six years as a psycho oncologist. Mm -hmm. So I worked with uh, children who were diagnosed with cancer and their families. Um, so I was a psychologist there for six years and I learned a whole bunch about how to help kids going through cancer, how to help their families. I learned a lot about uh, coping techniques and psychological theory to support the wellness journey. And I also saw a lot of um, things on the healthcare side, uh, how people and healthcare providers treat uh, patients. Um, and so I loved that work. Um, and right when I decided to leave, I was diagnosed with my own cancer. So mm -hmm. the doctor became the patient. Um, so my memoir uh, details my experience of having cancer in a very raw, uh, vulnerable way. Um, but it also talks a lot about coping techniques, ways for uh, people with cancer to be empowered, friends and family, things that they often say that are helpful, things that aren't helpful, and ways that healthcare providers can um, better and more effectively help uh, patients in general, how we can treat them with dignity, care, and respect. Wow. Wow. What an interesting perspective you have where you've, you've been on both sides, uh, where you've been a provider and you've helped families who've been diagnosed with cancer. And then you've gone through that process as a patient too. Yeah. What are some of the key things that you've, that you, uh, experienced as you were going through as a patient? Did you have any changes in perspective? Um, I think one of the things that I, um, confronted most powerfully was the, um, the sheer level of disempowerment that patients experience and how mm. as healthcare providers, we have no idea how much we can impact somebody's journey. Um, really just from getting to know them as a full person, uh, not seeing them as a diagnosis, but seeing them as an individual with a diagnosis, which is also something that we obviously mm. hope to do in, in the mental health field as well, right? Um, see them as a whole person. Uh, also pay close attention to our nonverbal language, uh, right? We can say so much nonverbally that people are really um, picking up on, even in terms of uh, relaying test results, right? not returning calls, returning them in a timely manner when somebody is really anxious, uh, mm -hmm. the way that um, individuals can deal with somebody with a medical history. There's, there's a lot of things that I learned. Um, some of them I saw as a healthcare provider um, and some I didn't see until I was a patient. Um, but both experiences really illuminated a lot of things that I think need um, further work um, in the future for, for patients in general. Yeah. It sounds like even before you got your diagnosis, you, as you were working with families, you were seeing this disempowerment, um, happening with, with families, with patients, um, and where 
there was a lot of, it sounds like there was a lot of anxiety that you were picking up on and helping people through. Um, and then some of the practices that you were seeing were just not empowering um, those families. Right. And I, and I don't think that it's even something that we can always control. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, when people are going through a trauma by that very, you know, that very nature, yeah. they are, you know, terribly frightened. They're waiting for answers. They feel in many ways that their fate and destiny lies in the health care provider's hands. Um, mm-hmm. And so they are picking up on the smallest level of, uh, information um, because they're so desperate for some sense of power and control that even when you walk into a room, you know, when I used to walk into a child's room as a psychologist to play video games, you know, parents would, you know, would want to know what information I knew and, you know, what I may be withholding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I saw, you know, very clearly then uh, a real level of disempowerment. And then I clearly experienced it as a patient when I, you know, would watch literally the technician's face, you know, when they were doing a biopsy to just see like, what did they know? What were they not sharing? Mm. You know, it seems like there's kind of this sense and I I can definitely relate with this, this sense of like, well, my medical providers, are they telling me everything that I need? And also are are decisions being made for me or for my child um, without my input? And I think that that is something to that I think uh, is natural that we would be aware of in any kind of health situation. So I think that things like uh, just recognizing that that is normal. So if I, if I go into my doctor and I, and I get any kind of procedure or I get any kind of diagnosis that it, it's natural that I'm going to have those thoughts or those concerns um, that, yeah, may, like I want to know everything. Absolutely. And part of getting any diagnosis is having to accept that there are so many unknowns. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's really um, contingent on so many things are contingent on the way that the healthcare provider deals with us. You know, when you're mm-hmm. a patient, whether that be uh, coming to someone for physical, medical, emotional services, you know, you're often worried um, if you're going for a medical procedure, you know, you're, there's a hierarchy, right, between provider and patient. Sometimes you have to wear a robe, you're very vulnerable, right? You're, sometimes you're ill, you're weak. Um, and so, you know, people are much more fragile. And um, the same goes for mental health. And we have to be really, really mindful of the experience of who's on the other end um, and do all that we can to remember, you know, the experience that someone's having and, and try and in whatever way we can empower them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so not only did my experience as a patient dramatically help me in my work as a therapist, um, you know, but I, I write about these things because I think that we all have a lot to learn in terms of how to treat other people with, you know, a, the greatest level of care. Yes. So when you were um, in your, I I just think it's so amazing that you took these two experiences that you had on totally different sides of provider and patient, and you were able to put them together into this memoir in a way that is really going to be helpful to so many people who are experiencing this, because there is sometimes a disconnect between provider and patient. Um, And to be able to hear both both sides of that, I think is, is so huge for somebody who maybe has just been diagnosed, um, with cancer or with any kind of life 
life-threatening diagnosis or if their child has been. Um, What a difficult situation. And knowing that somebody else has gone through that, being able to hear your experience of that and your interpretation of the care that you received, um, I think would be so beneficial for somebody. Because again, there's so much unknown. Yeah. And I think even beyond that, um, one of the things that's very clear in my book is that the, my memoir represents my journey, right? So once again, whether it's emotional well-being or physical well-being, the day that I started writing my book, I was in a very different psychological place than the day I finished my book. I had to go through so much identity change and so much growth and development on my own to be able to write the book. The book took me seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, and Uh, I wasn't writing for seven years. I shelved the book for a long time because identity wise, I wasn't really ready to put myself out there in the, to the Mm -hmm. world in such a vulnerable way, psychologically and physically. Right. Um, And I ended up uh, when I was ready emotionally to take the book off of the shelf and finish it, I had a a cancer recurrence. So I was like, Oh gosh, I have all of these new chapters to write, (laughs) but um, you know, it, it actually, you know, it, it, it very much paralleled my um, emotional experience because by the time I reached the end of the book, I think that it, it really demonstrates, you know, certainly pertinent to this, this podcast, the power of, of our journeys, the power of growing, the power of figuring yourself out and, and becoming, a new person, you know, not a new person, but I named my center, the metamorphosis center, right? So becoming, um, coming out of your cocoon and, and, you know, and turning from a caterpillar into a butterfly and really taking flight. Um, So yeah, so that's, that's what my, my book is about. Absolutely. I love that. I feel like your, your story really just fits so well with this idea of metamorphosis, because in any kind of physical change, in any kind of mental health change, or, or just habit coping change, right? And right. in, in, in us learning who we are and learning what works for us and what doesn't work for us in our lives. Um, we, we are always going through these changes, but we are, we remain ourselves. There are pieces of ourselves that are still the same. The caterpillar and our butterfly are the same creature. Um, but we go through these changes. And I love that because it's, it, it sounds like in your book, we can really see just in all of the different ways that your identity just changed your understanding of who you are has changed. Absolutely. Wonderful. I love that because it, it shows us that change is possible. Change is possible. And percent. Yeah. And it's possible through even circumstances that we wouldn't ask for or that we wouldn't wish for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's also the, the beauty of therapy, right? You know, for somebody to be on this journey of self-discovery and, and be able to see all of the things that, you know, that lay within them and all of the ways that they can, you know, use their past, whether that be pain or strength, whatever, um, and really grow and, and become, you know, a, a, a deeper, um, more fulfilled version of themselves. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So when you were working in oncology um, mm-hmm. at the Children's Center, were you were working there as the psychologist there on the floor? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And Correct. so did you see... Uh, did you find that for a lot of people, this was their first time working with a psychologist or did it seem like some, a mixed bag? What was your experience there? 
I think that they, many people were just thrown into a whole bunch of trauma. Um, and so um, the way that my center worked was that therapy was just something that was sort of offered and it was in a very benign way and it was in a very non-confrontational, non-threatening way. It was literally like I would you know, knock on the door and introduce myself, hey, I'm Renee, you know, and, and I, it was much more informal. It wasn't, um, you know, I'm, my training is like much more boundaried and psychodynamic. Uh, working with children who are chronically ill, you know, um, doesn't lend itself to such severe boundaries. You know, it's like you're playing video games, they're in their hospital gowns, um, you might be sitting there having McDonald's with them and, you know, um, and then all of a sudden they, you know, they get sick, right? And you have to leave the room and, you know, there's a, and once again, like a real level of vulnerability and disempowerment. Um, and so uh, many people had never experienced therapy. Um, and I think that one of the things that taught me is that there's a lot of ways to um, to be in a therapeutic relationship. You know, I would walk with some of the siblings of these kids um, and they didn't want to be in therapy, right? So we would walk from the cancer center down the street and, and go sit under a tree and have chocolate milk, right? But like the, the conversations that we would have in that maybe 30 minutes was, was really therapeutic, um, but it wasn't necessarily coming to a, a psychotherapy office and you know, and sitting there and talking about your feelings, it was, it was much more casual. And so coming from a much more um, psychodynamic, you know, um, program, um, you know, it, it also saw that it taught me that there are lots of ways that we can practice. Um, and, and since then I, I do, I do practice in many ways out of the box. Um, and even the idea of integrating exercise um, with psychotherapy is definitely something that's less formalized um, mm -hmm. and, you know, not traditional psychotherapy, but super cool and super yeah. helpful, you know, and, and I have found to be like really, really powerful for people. Yeah. I love that because it, I, I could see so many families, you know, maybe you have young children and then this happens where your child gets a diagnosis. Now they're in the hospital, you're living in the hospital basically. And that change, uh, being maybe the first time that they've experienced a counselor of any kind, there's so much, there's so much stigma around counseling and, you know, that, right. that very structured come to my office, come sit in the chair and talk to me, uh, kind of approach that is, is very useful. Um, but in a situation, situation like this, where, uh, people are, they're in survival mode. These families are right. fighting to survive. Mm -hmm. And right. so I love this idea that this can be their could be their first interaction with a counselor. And for right. that to be so, uh, so specific to what they needed in that moment is a wonderful representation of counseling in general it opens the door for the next time that they maybe need a counselor and and have that open experience of well I, I saw that one counselor at the hospital and that was okay right? that's so right maybe I can that's, and that's very important that's very important right I always teach that to my my students they're getting their master's degrees to become uh, licensed mental health counselors and you know, I always say like, if this is somebody's first experience, like even if they come to you once, right. And, you know, and they have a decent experience, you have now set the stage for, 
you know, a future relationship that that could be really beneficial. And it might not be with you. And it might not be, you know, for five years from now, but they have in their brain that it's not so terrible. Yes. Right. I love it. it's kind of, I mean, you're the metamorphosis center makes me also think about butterfly effect, right? And so for our listeners, if you're on the fence about counseling, just this idea that yeah, that first counselor you meet might be a counselor, a psychologist at a hospital, right? When you're not actively looking to see a counselor. If you have that experience, then what a great way to open that door for future mm-hmm. counseling. Um, yeah. And the fact that counseling can be so can look so many different ways. I love this example of going for a walk and drinking chocolate milk outside. <laughs> um, because that's so therapeutically appropriate for that situation. Um, but I think that, you know, the general public, I always think like, gosh, if I wasn't in this field, what would I think about counselors? And what would I think about counseling? It's not yeah. great. Um, so, right. So mm. I love this imagery of just being able to, to be in, uh, in a hospital room with somebody and eat McDonald's or play video games or read a bedtime story. Yeah. Um, I, I just think it's wonderful because it, yeah, we are in a, even if we're doing traditional psychotherapy and we're going into somebody's office and we're sitting down, we're in a vulnerable place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I do think when you say, you know, when you just said like, you don't know necessarily if you would think highly of, you know, counseling, right. I think some of that is, is the way that um, therapy is portrayed sometimes in the media. Um, And I also think that, you know, it's really important for mental health professionals to, I, I try really hard to, to show the people who come to see me that, I'm not perfect either, right? Like this is life. Like we're all on a continuum. We're all trying to, you know, just become the best version of, of ourselves, right? And I think that the more that we can put that out there, that like, you know, the, I think there's this misnomer that mental health professionals are, you know, all perfect, right? There is no perfect. <laughs> there's no perfect, right? And yeah. so I think that there's a lot that, you know, each counselor can do to just sort of, um, you know, illuminate this idea that like, you know, therapy is, is really just a journey for us to become more fulfilled versions of ourselves, you know, whoever we're meant to be, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I, it it reminds me of, I mean, gosh, my, when I was five, I used to say to my mom, I don't know which boy in my class I'm going to marry. Okay. <laughs> and my mom would be like, you don't know who, like, you, don't, you haven't met him yet, probably, right? But it, it reminds me of that, this idea, because we're able to, to say, gosh, I don't know who I'm going to be in 10 years. I don't know who I'm going to be in 20 years. And that that's okay. That's great. Um, and I love this idea that no, no counselors are perfect because they wouldn't have let me through school then <laughs> if I had to be. Right? There is like, no perfect. None of us would be. There is no perfect. Be. <laughs> yeah, there is no perfect. Like we're all just different. Right. And so, you know, even being able to give somebody psychoeducation, right. That there is no perfect, that, that it's not about, meeting somebody else's ideal of or idea of what they think you should be that, you know, our jobs as as human beings is to, is to just figure out what makes us tick, what makes us happy, right? Like what, you know, how do we want to exist in the world, right? And so as therapists, you know, our job is to just help people figure that out for themselves, right? Not what their mother wants, not what their father wants, not what their boss wants, right? But like, what makes them happy? What, you know, what lights them up inside? What makes them who they are? 
right? And so sometimes, um, you know, that's a really important thing when, when people say like, why should I see a therapist, right? It's like, I can talk to my mother or I can talk to my friends about this. I don't need to pay somebody, right? But like many times when you're talking to your mother or your friend, right, you're getting their version of who they think you should be, right? Um, to no fault of their own, but they're seeing the world through their lens, right? And so our job in therapy is to help the clients see their life through their lens, right? To figure out what their lens is, right? How it differs from maybe, maybe how it is different from their parents or their friend or their boss or whomever. I love that. So tell us more about this because you, you are also a bodybuilder, right? So you've got this whole- bodybuilder. I don't know. I just had like a Twinkie yesterday. So I don't know how much of a bodybuilder I am today. <laughs> are but, bodybuilders um, allowed to have Twinkies? I feel like they probably they, are. <laughs> bodybuilders are definitely allowed to have Twinkies. The more the merrier. Um, so I am a personal trainer and um, I became a personal trainer really as I was, as I was healing from, from my first cancer. Um, I was, you know, when you have cancer, you feel completely disconnected from your body. And in many ways you feel like your body betrayed you. Um, Mm. you know, it's like, I was, I didn't feel sick, right. I didn't look sick. And my doctor's like, no, 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 you are right. You are sick. And so for me, exercise, um, and nutrition was a really powerful way to sort of get back in sync with my body. Um, and so I start, and I was always into exercise. Exercise. I always loved to dance. I always ate relatively healthy, but I was a sugar addict. Like I would inject Laffy Taffy, like nobody's business. Um, and so I just started becoming much more involved in nutrition. I started researching foods that um, were known to be inflammatory or foods that, uh, you know, were known to grow tumors. Then I started researching food that we knew were anti-inflammatory or, you know, helped shrink tumors. And so I really started changing the way I ate and I started exercising much more significantly. And I loved the way that I could tell my body, you know, eat sweet potatoes and egg whites and, and do this number of, you know, reps and your body's going to follow in this way. It's going to look this way and it's going to grow muscles this way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would tell my body something and it would listen. And so I loved that. And I started working with a personal trainer and I got really into it. And she happened to be a, a, a professional bodybuilder, right? And she would, you know, uh, do competitions. And so all these people started coming over to me saying, are you training to do a competition? And I'm like, what is this? What is this competition? You know, and so my, my coach, she's, you know, she told me what she does. She, you know, and I'm like, there's no way in the world that you will ever, ever see me standing on stage in a bikini and stripper heels and flexing (laughs) my muscles. It will never, ever happen. And I started getting more and more into it. And more and more people started saying, are you competing to do a show? And it was around the time of my four years out of having had cancer that I started thinking, you know what? it might be kind of cool to uh, commemorate my five year anniversary out of having had cancer by doing a show. And so I asked my trainer, I'm like, what's, what's involved that, okay, tell me about the stripper heels. What do I have to do? (laughs) Where do I get them? (laughs) Where where do I get the stripper heels? And, you know, and so it was really, I was already really so focused and, and living that life that it was really just about like really 
tweaking things and making my diet, you know, even more regimented. And um, on my fifth year anniversary, right around the exact same time, actually, I did my first um, competition. And it was a very beautiful, empowering experience. Um, I never would have thought ever that it would have been something that I did, but I actually found it extremely empowering. And um, I actually won um, in my division, my first show, which was super cool. And I did one more show um, a couple of years later. Um, and, you know, it's been a few years since I've actually competed. As you get older, uh, it gets a little bit harder to, to, you know, make your body do certain things. But I, I would like to do another competition, um, you know, but in, in the interim, I actually became a personal trainer. And then I started integrating psychotherapy and exercise. <laughs> I came up with this idea because I was already a psychologist and I had many people coming to me for therapy, many middle-aged women who were depressed or, you know, adolescents who were being bullied. And I would find myself talking to them about the merits of exercise and how empowering it was and why they should do it. And gives our brain serotonin, which helps reduce anxiety and depression and helps us like a, a host of, you know, only proven thing to combat dementia, like so many benefits. And I realized that I was talking about it so much, but I wasn't legally allowed to be doing like squats with them. Right. And so I ended up becoming a personal trainer. And then I opened this center, the metamorphosis center for psychological and physical change, uh, which name is obviously very significant to me personally. Um, and so I have this crazy setup. Uh, first of all, it was my office was previously owned by two interior decorators. So they had their way with the paint. My I have <laughs> hot pink and turquoise crazy walls and chandeliers and butterflies and sunflowers all over my office. It's a, a funky, eclectic space. And half of my office is a gym, a little gym, but you know, I've got my my dumbbells and my bench press and my TRX. Um, and then the other half is stodgy psychotherapy with my mahogany desk and my diplomas. And <laughs> You know, and so I offer it as a service. You know, if somebody wants to integrate the two, it's available. And, you know, it also depends on the individual person, what we're working on. And if I, I think it could be helpful or if they think it could be helpful. And it's a beautiful uh, compilation of, of two of my passions. And I think that mind body is so important. I don't think that we can look at uh, emotions without understanding physicality and, and vice versa. I don't think we can look at our bodies without understanding how illness and, and our physical state of being is, you know, can be uh, very much impacting our emotional experience. So I think that really understanding, um, you know, the interplay is so critical. Um, and I, I incorporate a lot of visual imagery. So um, I, it, for instance, I may be working with a kid who's being bullied um, and I may have him or her, you know, close their eyes and envision this superhero or a stronger version of themselves. Right. And at the same time, they'll be doing bicep curls and we'll maybe even talk about, you know, we'll even say mantras out loud. Like I am bringing strength to myself and I am, you know, infusing my body with strength. And it's a very powerful experience. And, um, I believe in it wholeheartedly. Um, it was something that I utilized in my, my journey with cancer. And it's something that I use with my own 
clients. And I just think that it's so unique and special. This idea of losing trust in your body, this is, this, it kind of blew my mind when you said that. So (laughs) I I just want to go back to it because, wow. Okay. So when you got your diagnosis, it felt like, okay, I felt fine. Like I, every message I was getting from my body was like, you're everything's normal. And then getting the, it felt like a betrayal. Um, and so trust was broken there. And I love, I love, love, love this idea that you can intentionally build that trust back that you could, you acknowledge that that trust was broken and that you intentionally set out to build that trust back between your mind. But this is, yeah, and your but body. this is a very powerful thing in, in therapy as well, right? We know that resilience is a mental muscle. Resilience isn't something that you're born with. Resilience is a muscle that you can build. And so many of the clients with whom we work have experienced trauma or, you know, early abandonment or, you know, many, many early issues. And, and so it's, it's the same metaphor. Sometimes they don't even know, right, that what they have experienced was damaging or traumatic, right? I've actually worked with children who have experienced physical abuse. And some of them have absolutely no idea that that's not the way it is in every home. Mm-hmm. You know, like they don't realize that their friends don't get hit. Like some of them have no idea, right? So, so it's the same thing for emotional. It's like realizing, wait, this isn't, you know, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And how do I get it fixed? How do I change it? How do I get in control of a situation that, you know, might not have been the way it's supposed to be, right? And, and so it's like teaching the person to find that inner strength and figure out ways where they can, you know, become more empowered, right? And when we're working with children, obviously, it's harder because sometimes, you know, they don't have so much control. They're, you know, they're in homes um, where they may, you know, not have so much choice. But we do what we can to teach people to access their inner resources and figure out ways that they can, you know, rebuild or grow or, you know. Absolutely. I mean, it is very similar with, you know, learning to trust our, our thought processes or learning what, which thought processes, <laughs> which thought yeah. processes that we naturally have that maybe we don't want to trust it. And same thing with our bodies, right? So uh, there are certain, like, there's naturally what I would grab out of a, a buffet of food. Uh, and, and so learning that like, okay, that's my natural tendency. Uh, and maybe I don't, trust that one so much, right? That natural choice that I would make, because if I'm at a buffet, I'm not going to the salad bar. Like that's not my natural place I would go. That's right. Um, I'm going to like the mozzarella sticks. Like that's where I'm going <laughs> naturally. Right. So I'm with you. Know, you. Yeah. Like just, <laughs> just being able to, and it's the, it's, it's bringing to the physical side of things, what we are talking about in therapy. So in therapy, we're going, okay, I accept about myself, Julie Johnson, that if I don't have stuff written down, I will never remember it. Right. Or that, that when something happens in my life where I feel like somebody is leaving me, that I get triggered by that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and I know that about myself. I acknowledge that, that like I get mad at that person for no reason. Right. And so then I go, okay, I know that that is what I 
do. That's my natural tendency because of my life experiences. And then I go, okay, I have a choice about that. I have a choice to make. Do I go with what I naturally would do or do I make a different choice? And I think the same thing, uh, I love this parallel with our physical body and our physical health because we can say now, yeah, you, you can't control if you get cancer. Like that's not something you have control over. Um, but in terms of reconnecting, rebuilding trust in your body, that is something you have control over and that you can in take intentional action over. And I love that because, uh, yeah, left to my natural devices, I'm going to sit on the couch all day long. Like there's 0% chance left to my natural devices right. that I'm going to work out at 5am, like 0%. Mm -hmm. Um, however, I do it every morning because I know that that that's my natural tendency. I accept that. But there are things that I can do so that I will work out every morning. At Absolutely. And I, I love that building that trust in ourselves. Um, that's, yeah, and that's the power of therapy. You know, it's the power mm -hmm. of therapy. And, and, you know, to teach people resources about themselves that they didn't even know that they had, right, or to teach people, you know, things that they could do right? That, you know, we are all right. We're all in control of, we can't control what happens to us, but we can control our response to it. And so to even teach people how to, con you know, the psychoeducation, right? Like how to be able to control the things that happen to you, right? There are techniques, right? Um, and so that's a pretty cool thing, you yeah. know? What are some of the, uh, the most common techniques that coping techniques that you would use um, when you were working in oncology? What were the, the most common ones that you brought to people? Yeah, so um, a lot of these are actually in my book. Um, Great. Uh, one of the things that I talk about is the power of nutrition and exercise, right? Because like by controlling what we put into our bodies, we're taking an active role in our health, right? Mm -hmm. um, exercise, we can literally be diminishing anxiety and depression and yes. uh, having a, a, a sense of empowerment over our environment, right? So those are two really important ones. Um, the average human being thinks of 60,000 thoughts per day, right? So we have like this incredible power in our mind to, to literally, you know, go anywhere we want to go in our brain, right? And so I think number one, visual imagery is really, really critical. Um, seeing, seeing in our, our brain, the thing that we want to happen and focusing on it, right? Like whether that be a test that you're about to take the next morning, right? I have a, a daughter who, you know, she'll say, oh, I'm going to bomb my AP exam tomorrow. Right. And, and of course, when your mom's a psychologist, the response is, if you say you're going to bomb your AP exam, then you <laughs> are going to bomb your AP exam. Right. So like, right. And so what do I say? before you go to bed, close your eyes and see yourself rocking that exam, right? See yourself rocking it, just visualize it, right? So the visual imagery is really powerful. And, and there are thousands of studies specifically with cancer patients. There was this study in the 1970s, this amazing researcher, Carl Simonton, and he researched how when patients envisioned a Pac-Man eating away at their cancer mm -hmm. cells, their, their tumors showed a dramatic reduction in their size. And so- that's really critical. And as a patient who had cancer myself, I came up with my own visual imagery and I thought about it every night. My, my imagery was sunflowers. And the reason I came up with sunflowers was because I wanted to come up with something that was sort of, I saw as like tough and strong and could really withstand any storm. And sunflowers 
for me were, were that they always sort of lean towards the sun and they always lean towards hope. Um, but they also like grow like these crazy things. And I just felt like they could withstand any storm. And so I focused on seeing sunflowers all of the time through chemo, through radiation. Um, and I surrounded myself with sunflowers, real sunflowers, sunflower paraphernalia. I signed my emails with sunflower emojis. I still do that. Um, so that was really important. Humor, really important. Whether I'm working with people now or when I was a patient myself, you know, when I went through radiation, I came up with a radiation playlist. And, you know, every day I was getting radiation, I would go into the, uh, I would go into the technicians and I would add a new song each day for, for my radiation playlist. And, you know, and I'd walk in and I would sing with them like some crazy song about, you know, like radioactive or this girl's on fire. <laughs> Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. I had a whole, and each time I'd go in, this is what I would do. Was I feeling incredibly joyful each time I went to radiation? No, you know, but when you, when you put your brain in that space, you know, you can create a, a different, a different feeling. You can create a different connection with the technicians. So that, so there's so, um, to answer your question, so many, I can go on and on about coping mechanisms. Um, there are many, um, and I, and I detail a lot of them in my book. Um, but I, I just think that human beings have a tremendous capacity to thrive and be resilient. And I also think that we're malleable and, you know, um, I think that therapy in, in general shows people that they have that capacity. You know, we can show people ways that they can grow and we can also reflect back to them the difficult situations that they've been through in the past that they may not have even realized that they got through yeah. and that those are the same skills that they can take to, you know, use to get through this next difficult journey. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. I love that. I mean, being able to see the the time frame in your book can help other people to reflect back on those times for themselves. They're not going to have the same experience. They're not going to have the same uh, identity shifts throughout, but they are going to experience changes in themselves and being able to say, hey, I see these changes in Renee. I had some changes as well as I went through. This is what I learned from this is amazing. So I love that you, um, I mean, that could not have been an easy process and seven years to, um, to this memoir, right? And going through all of that, but being able to come out the other side with this, with this understanding of what people need. Um, and this, this offering of this memoir to be able to help somebody who is going through this for the first time to know that change is possible, to know that, um, these outcomes are possible and to learn these coping skills that you learned throughout that seven year process Absolutely. is amazingly helpful. And not just for patients, for their friends and family, because there's so many people who want to be helpful yeah. But they just don't know how. And they often say things that are not the right things to say. And it's not out of a lack of love. It's, it's really just because they don't know better or sometimes they're afraid, you know? And so, yeah. so I, I talk about a lot of things that people can do to, you know, more effectively help and healthcare providers that. too. That's a big one. Yeah. I love that. So um, I, I'm definitely going to be ordering one of these books. So how <laughs> do you. how do we order this book or how do we get to read? This uh, it's on Amazon. 
Um, and it's, um, you know, it's, it's um, lessons learned from be- chemo muscles. Uh, now you, now you fully understand the title chemo muscles mm-hmm. lessons learned from being a psycho oncologist and cancer patient. Wonderful. So available on Amazon. And then for listeners who are in New York, who live near Manhasset or Nyack, New York, how do they get in touch with you to get signed up for services at the Metamorphosis Center? Um, my website is drexelbert.com. D-I, this is a tough one. D-R-E-X-E-L-B-E-R-T.com. Drexelbert.com. And I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram and all that cool stuff. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story. And uh, we look forward to reading more in chemo muscles uh, and getting to learn from that. I'm Dr. Renee Exelbert, and I need a counselor. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here uh, and for sharing your story. It's been so Thank educational you. for mm-hmm. us as yeah. well. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. So if you are in uh, New York, definitely get in touch with the Metamorphosis Center. If you are in Iowa, get in touch with Heart and Solutions, uh, 800-531-4236. If you're in a different state, send us a message on Facebook Messenger at You Need a Counselor Podcast or on Instagram uh, DM at You Need a Counselor Podcast. Send us a message if you're in a different state. Send us your zip code and we will send you some people to connect with, some counselors to connect with in your area as well. Like Julie mentioned at the beginning, we post every Sunday night at 5 p.m. 5 p.m. Central. So save up your laundry for the, from the week. Put that away while you listen to our new episode. And we can help you get ready to call a counselor that week to get set up with services as well. Absolutely. If you've got questions for uh, Dr. Renee Exelbert as well, we'd love to have her on the show again uh, to answer those questions that you guys might have. So go ahead and send those to us as well um, on Facebook or on Instagram. I'm Crystal Brown. And I'm Julie Johnson. And we need a counselor. And so do you. Bye. Bye.